You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It was one of those unplanned events that happened in an atmosphere when crime was rampant and the police were on the back foot. Marcellus Ward was a narcotics detective in Baltimore working on a federal state drug task force. And he was executing a series of undercover buys to try to help to bring down a drug organization. The police didn't know. One day when Ward was executing this undercover drug operation, there's an unexpected police bust. The dealer panics, pulls out his three fifty seven caliber, and shoots Ward three times, once in the hand, twice in the heart, killing him. And so uh, I was a traditional drug warrior, figuring that uh, we could arrest and prosecute our way out of the problem. The thing was, for many years, Ward had been working with a young and promising state's attorney, the equivalent of a DA in Maryland, named Kurt Schmoke. Uh, then I had a, a friend of mine who was a police officer uh, working undercover uh, who was killed in the uh, midst of a, an undercover a, a drug uh, operation and um, uh, had to make a decision about uh, whether to prosecute the, the person uh, who killed, uh, this is Officer Marcellus Ward, uh, who killed him uh, for the uh, uh, death penalty. And uh, Marty Ward, when he uh, was uh, shot and killed, actually was wearing a body wire, so I had to listen over and over to the conversations. Bottom line is that uh, that whole uh, and involvement in that convinced me that there were as many people out here who were hooked on drug money that were hooked on drugs. So when the case came to trial, Schmoke was the state's attorney with responsibility for deciding whether to seek the death penalty, which turned on intent. He decided to pursue the death penalty. A jury thought otherwise, but it had a deep effect on him. And he just started thinking about how the system wasn't working. Ward was trying to achieve something, and the war on drugs that the nation and the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland was engaged in just didn't seem to be effective. And so uh, I felt that if we were going to, quote, win uh, the war, uh, that we had to come up with approaches that took the profit out of distributing drugs at the Mm -hmm. street level. That led me to look more and more had uh, analogies between alcohol prohibition back in the 1920s, <laughs> drug prohibition uh, in the 1980s, and I, it, that convinced me uh, that, uh, yes, we need the war on drugs, but it ought to be a public health war led by <laughs> public health professionals. Seventy-five years the nation had been in one form or another on a war on drugs, you know, officially declared in the early 1970s under President Nixon. This enormous appetite for mind-altering substances, whether it's nicotine, whether it's alcohol, marijuana, or what else Kurt Schmoke thought, isn't influenced by police action. 
We're just asking too much of our police officers. Kurt Schmoke was a prosecutor, but he'd soon get into a place where he could do more about it. The first thing to understand about Baltimore is it's a city of negative population growth, and it still is. In the 70s, closing of manufacturing plants like Bethlehem Steel at Sparrows Point, which in 1887 opened and employed lots of Baltimoreans, the largest waterfront steel mill in the world. Also, the closing of the 70-year-old General Motors plant on Broning Highway. The closing of the huge Daniels factory would so negatively impact the quality of life that people would just simply leave. Fathers couldn't provide for their sons even what they had. Forget about getting better. Earlier last year, I walked through the streets of Baltimore. I was there uh, on business and... In between, or when the business was wrapped up, I walked from the convention center, which is near the Inner Harbor, through the downtown, and to a neighborhood called Mount Vernon. It's not super far away, so that you can walk it, especially for a walker like myself. And Mount Vernon is a neighborhood that's interesting. It's named after, of course, Washington's home. And it features, in the center of the neighborhood, a large Washington monument. It's actually the first Washington monument, the Washington Monument in D.C., was modeled after the one in Baltimore. And Mount Vernon is still one of the nicer neighborhoods to live in in Baltimore where there's going to be a lot of uh, young professionals. And I met a friend there and um, at the old Belvedere Hotel built in 1904. There's an Owl Bar there, which was actually uh, a very popular watering hole, so to speak. And I believe it was open during Prohibition unofficially because... There's a quote from Calvin Coolidge kind of playing off something that Calvin Coolidge said about himself being silent. But the owl is silent. The less he spoke, the more he knew. It's in a speakeasy, so there's that. Baltimore was established in 1729, so it had this long history. The city was hustle-bustle from the start. Where it was established originally, um, there was an old old Baltimore that was actually moved, and, and now it's a, a point known as Locust Point. And in the 1750s, it had about 30 houses, but it didn't take long for it to grow and start to develop an ironworks. And Germans, Scots-Irish, Acadians fleeing British Canada, and of course African slaves were brought to Baltimore and started building the city. By the 1760s and 1770s, it had a market, which still remains there today, Lexington Market, a post office, a large red brick white wood trim tavern called the Henry Henry Fitt House, and the Second Continental Congress would be held there, effectively making Baltimore one of the capitals of the United States during the Revolution after the British threatened Philadelphia. Baltimore had a firefighting company, and the firefighters would have a long, long role in establishing political clubs in Baltimore, helping to get Millard Fillmore elected president 
well, not elected president nationally, but winning the Baltimore in 1856 as a know-nothing candidate. The firefighters were supporting the know-nothing party. Those political clubs are the ancestors of political clubs that ran the city for many, many years. They would have an almshouse, a theater, a courthouse, several churches, Anglican, Lutheran, Evangelical, Presbyterian. It would have a newspaper. It would swallow up nearby Jonestown and Fells Point into its realm. By 1790, it's got 13,000 people. It's not quite a Philadelphia with 30,000, but pretty impressive. We've discussed on the podcast previously and on uh, one of the Ark of Commerce theories how Baltimore led in terms of railroads. The first one was established here. So it's, and that brings more people to the city. There's a lot to say about its middle history. I won't get into all of that. You know, obviously it plays a role in the Civil War where its citizens weren't exactly on the Union side. In fact, Union troops trying to get to the front are attacked in Baltimore. But uh, it grows eventually. It's got a half million people by the time you get to 1900. Another 100,000 in the surrounding county. In 1901, a skyscraper, the Continental Trust Company, is built. The large Belvedere Hotel that I mentioned, a beautiful building. Got to see it. Now it's a condo, but it still has that nice owl bar in the bottom. You can just imagine H.L. Mencken just sitting there, a famous Baltimore Sun journalist sitting there, sipping a beer at one of the tables. Electric trains brought Baltimoreans to D.C. in 1908 back and forth, and more skyscrapers would appear. Radio stations for Baltimore would prop up in the 1920s. University of Baltimore forms, an art gallery. Factories start to build up on the Patapsco River, and shipyards that will build that will build 2,700 ships eventually from the 30s to the 70s. In 1950, it hits a landmark. Its population will reach 946,000 people. 1950, and there it will stop. Touching, achingly close to a million in the city proper, but it will never reach higher than that. As while it's gaining people, it's losing people to Baltimore's suburbs. They're building roads to Baltimore County, Anne Arundel, and Carroll Counties. A memorial stadium is built to honor recent World War I and World War II dead. And the Baltimore Orioles play there. Proud of its history, the city in the 1950s opens up a B&O Railroad Museum in an old 1884 railroad roundhouse. It's still there. But there are struggles. Civil rights hits the town with a sit-in at Reed's Drug Store. And in 1968, on Martin Luther King's assassination, there are riots in the city. Three years later, William Donald Schaefer becomes mayor. He serves from 1970 to 1987. He puts his mark on the city during that time. There's a newspaper that calls Baltimore a loser. This gets him and many people in Baltimore upset. So he launches a campaign. The city is to be called Charm City. We want to welcome you. 
And I have to say, having been there, I do find people there very charming. You know, it it kind of fits. Um, It's a kind of half-southern city, if you will. Uh, particularly as someone from the Northeast, I, I find yeah, I find it, it, it fits. But it was sort of a slogan that was for marketing purposes. Schaefer puts a shine on the city. He's going to become governor after this. He gets a lot of federal money, even more money during the Carter administration when it's a president of the same party. But he can work with the Republicans, too. He's going to end up endorsing George H.W. Bush in the 92 election and not Bill Clinton. He gets lots of federal money. They rebuild the harbor in Baltimore, turn it into a tourist attraction, which is still there today. But something's happening. They're not getting back that 959,000 people. It's dropping by 1970, 900,000 people. Schaefer's mayor, another 10 years in 1980, 786,000 people, 640-odd today. Beneath all the shiny new buildings on the harbor, the restaurants, the shops, the ships that come in, the aquarium, the loads of tourists, there is rot beneath the surface. Sizable percentage of the city by the time you get to 1987. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Crack is a highly concentrated, crystallized form of coca leaves. The leaves, it's so processed that it bears little relationship. It's like, you know, comparing a jolly rancher to the watermelon fruit. With a glut of cocaine powder in the 1970s, supply is high and demand relatively satisfied. Dealers are fighting it out. They need to find another way. Cocaine baked into rocks can be smoked and they can peel to those with less money. And by 1980, you start seeing this crack show up in Los Angeles, Houston, and the Caribbean, and it spreads to other cities. By 1985, the known cases of cocaine addiction in the U.S. go from 4.2 million to 5.8 million, probably much more. The law responded with changed punishments 
100 to 1 sentencing disparities of crack versus powdered cocaine. Crack will get you five grams, will get you five years. It would take 500 grams of the powdered to get the same sentence. There's violence. It isn't all just people being locked up arbitrarily. Some of it also is the violence. There's 300 murders per year in a city of 650,000. That's like if the U.S. had 150,000 murders per year. That's what it would be like if the whole U.S. was like Baltimore during this time. We're a tenth of that, about 15,000 murders a year in the United States in 2019. 40,000 Baltimoreans are arrested each year, and the police force is taxed. The only place that's always hiring, said D. Watkins, an author of a book about being in the drug trade, is the shadow economy. It's super dangerous to serve drug to sell drugs in East Baltimore. Everyone's fishing to be on top. They'll do anything. They'll even call the cops on you if they can take your corner. People ran crack dens out of corner stores, out of houses, on the street. If there were like 100 blocks in a row, each one had its own business and its own clientele. In this environment, though, something unexpected happens in Baltimore, something that people are actually excited about. Donald Schaefer retires, and he's well-liked. That's not what they're excited about. Clarence Burns, who is the council president, is who Donald Schaefer wants to hand things off to. Schaefer's got his power from the various political clubs in Baltimore. He wants to hand off to Clarence Burns. And he does when he becomes governor. Clarence Burns is mayor for a few months and runs for mayor himself. But he doesn't win. Because surprisingly, there's a candidate that nobody expected. Someone who had never participated in any of the political clubs. There comes a time when people feel it's time for a change. The newly elected mayor, Kurt Schmoke, told the Washington Post in 1987, to a great extent, people are looking for a fresh start. He wanted to address the many problems that were lurking beneath the surface to actually fix things. The school system the illiteracy, the teenage pregnancy. Prepare Baltimore for a job market that required high-tech skills, things that we hear about many places in America. He wanted to apply this to Baltimore in 1987. Baltimore Reads would be his initiative. And he'd have signs that say Baltimore Reads all over the city. Some of them are still there. Kurt Schmoke wasn't somebody who was born into the type of poverty that he wanted to fight even though he was African-American. He would be the first elected African-American mayor of Baltimore. Of course, Clarence Burns would be the first African-American mayor. His parents were both college graduates with good jobs. He was an only child. He's also the quarterback of his high school football team. And he caught the attention of Robert Hammerman, a white Baltimore city judge who ran a club called the Lancers for youth that he saw potential for, and he'd meet with them on a regular basis and mentor them. They became close friends. Hammerman suggested that Smoke aim high in his choice of a college, and Smoke decided to eschew any of the local choices and went to Yale. He got a Rhodes Scholarship and studied at Oxford University. He knew he was headed for a career in the law and probably politics. He had a good moment at Yale, where in the late 1960s, anti-war sentiment turned many campuses into battlegrounds. 
Tensions erupted at Yale during the New Haven murder trial of Black Panther activist Bobby Seale. Seale's trial progressed. A group of Yale students protested at the campus administration building, quickly becoming an angry mob. Faculty members were inside the building and predicted the universities is going to really suffer a calamity here. And they need one representative to talk to, like bring in one representative from the students outside. The students choose Kurt Schmoke. He was 20, but he takes the podium and says, the students in this campus are confused. They're frightened. They don't know what to think. You're older than we are and more experienced. We want guidance from you, moral leadership. I beg you, give it to us. On both sides, nerves were calmed, and a solution was worked out, at least for how the university was going to handle the crisis and allow protests and things like that. It couldn't affect the trial. Schmoke got a job with a prestigious Baltimore law firm and eventually would go into the White House when Carter was elected. Stuart Eisenstadt, who was one of Carter's uh, domestic policy advisors, had him as an employee. He didn't quite know Schmoke until one day Schmoke says he'd like to meet with him. Eisenstadt says, okay, I guess this guy from Baltimore has some ambitions, wants to talk to me about wanting to do more or something. No. Schmoke says, I'm leaving the White House. Eisenstadt had never heard anyone say that. Everyone wanted to, to work there. Schmoke wanted to leave. He wanted to do things in Baltimore. And eventually, he continues working for law firms and then runs for state attorney and upsets the white incumbent, wins the election in 1982. We kind of wanted to have an argument about where we were going and what the stakes were or what it seemed like they were in our post-industrial city of Baltimore. Now, if we only write something that makes you think about Baltimore, uh, it's problematic. So we were trying to be specific to what we knew and what we were very familiar with, but also write to what seemed to be the condition of, of, of Western democracy. Around this time, there's a young reporter at the Baltimore Sun, David Simon. And He's an interesting character. Sometimes the editors have to rein him in a bit. You know, it's okay to report on the drug trade, uh, David. It's okay to report on what's going on with the police bust of a drug dealer. But, you know, a long article comparing a uh, drug kingpin to Richard III, Richard as a Shakespearean figure, you know, we're going to have to reject that. But there was all of this in David Simon's writing. And he was dedicated and he was a workhorse. His ear was tuned for the street corner and the precinct. For 13 years, he covers crime reporting. He knows how people talk, down to the accent, to have suction. That means to have pull with your higher-ups in the police force. A red ball is a high-profile case with political consequences. To re-up, well, that's to get more drugs to sell. The game, that's the drug trade trade. And I don't have to tell you if you're a watcher of HBO, The Wire, what comes next. All of these things that this young reporter is going to report on are in that show that you may have watched. I've certainly watched all five seasons. As uh, one actor, an African-American actor who plays the character Chris Partlow, one of the enforcers for the drug dealers, says, this is David's domain. He gets the street of Baltimore better than we do. Simon delivers a pilot to HBO after having produced a book and a TV series in November 2001. His title of 
route of the show refers to a wiretap that a unit of the Baltimore police force was using to keep a local drug organization under surveillance. But he intends it to suggest more. He wants to create a novel, an ongoing video novel about Baltimore. He starts with the streets, then the docks, then the politics, then the schools, then the newspaper. Me and my colleagues had ripped off the Greeks, Sophocles, Aeschylus, and Euripides. Not funny boy, not Aristophanes. We basically taken the idea of Greek tragedy and applied it to the modern city-state. It wasn't our intention, but of course it was inevitable that it would happen. We were going to create fodder for those people who were, who, who were inclined racially to mistake the underclass of any race with the race in its entirety. There were people who looked at the wire and said, that's black America. Uh, and, and of course the wire made no claims to that. There's an entire vibrant black middle class in my country that is, is, you know, we were making an argument about class, not race. The city just happens to be 65% African American. What we were trying to do was take the notion of Greek tragedy, of fated and doomed people, and instead of those Olympian gods, indifferent, venal, selfish, hurling lightning bolts and hitting people in the ass for no reason, instead of those guys, it's the postmodern institution. Those are the indifferent gods. One Sun reporter who worked with Simon said, you know how in a Russian novel the reader does the work for the first hundred pages and then it turns and you're lost in it? With The Wire, it might be episode six before it turns and you're in. The creators of The Wire would never say that their work was as good as Tolstoy or Dickens, but they can't quite resist the comparison either. I feel the same way about The Wire. I've answered questions on Quora from someone who has... Watch the whole first season, and it's kind of like, when is this going to start to get good? And that's really up to you and your DNA, in my opinion, though I would encourage everyone to watch the program. Um, I have friends who can't watch it, who don't like it, and I have plenty of friends who, who love it. But The Wire is not just about entertainment. Uh, it's obviously telling a story. And Kurt Schmoke is a part of that story, though, uh, you know, it's by no means the entirety of what he's of what he, his story is. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. 
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Kutchmoke has a kind of conversion when he gets to the position of mayor. I mean, we know that these ideas have been in his head, uh, even as a prosecutor, but he's in a position to do something about it now. Clearly, uh, when I uh, became mayor and I looked at our city, well, we've got a, a great city, but unfortunately it was a tale of two cities. Uh, mm-hmm. On one hand, we had some uh, great, uh, you know, wonderful activities, uh, the best of urban America, and then eight blocks away from the best uh, was some of the worst. And a lot of that had to do, uh, the, the worst aspects of the, the problem had to do with substance abuse and um, what, in my view, was kind of the, the, the three-pronged aspect. Uh, it was um, uh, addiction, uh, it was a crime associated with distributing drugs, and it was AIDS. And he doesn't wait a moment. You know, as soon as he's elected, in a U.S. conference of mayor, he brings up that we're losing the drug war. It hasn't worked. More arrests aren't working. Let's try something different. Let's try legalizing drugs. A legalization of marijuana and then other drugs, specific actions for each drug. Some might be banned. Others would be under a doctor's supervision. He then goes on Nightline and says the same thing. Then to a U.S. House of Representatives Committee, exploring his ideas. The reality remains as true today as ever. We have spent so many years and untold billions of dollars trying to square the circle, and we have failed. We need a measured and carefully implemented program of drug decriminalization, similar to the repeal of prohibition. $140 billion are spent on illicit drugs. Spent part of that to fix it. He conceded that there were risks. Providing legal access to currently illicit substances carries with it the chance, although by no means the certainty, that the number of people using and abusing drugs will increase. But addiction, for all its attendant medical, social, and moral problems, is but one evil associated with drugs. Moreover, the criminalization of narcotics, cocaine, and marijuana has not solved the problem of their use. Everything the cops are doing doesn't solve the problem of their use. In David Simon's show, The Wire, he calls it hamster dam. It's what the corner boys, the kids who assist the drug dealers in peddling drugs and bringing the money or in delivering the product, very young kids, they start to call this area that one rogue major has carved out in a part of Baltimore and call, the kids call it hamster dam because there the major says that his police will not enforce the law and will allow drugs to be used. And so you have this horrible scene uh, in season three of The Wire where there's users shooting up 
where there's all kinds of prostitution going on, where there's kids sitting around with nothing to do amidst people lying in the street, you know, almost ODing because now they can legally have as much of the drug as they want. I mean, in one comic scene, the police actually have to go to the corners and get customers so the drug dealers won't leave this Amsterdam non-enforcement zone area. But the other side of it, and it's so Greek and tragic and everything else, maybe Shakespearean, the other side of it is that the rest of this old neighborhood an African-American neighborhood that had been plagued by drugs for so long is now clean. The corners are free. You know, the few cops that walk around can take care of small things that that need to be. Some kids have a lemonade stand. People can sit on their stoops now without fear. And it's the good and the bad. I mean, that's indeed what one of the actors says. I done showed you the good. Let me show you the bad. It's eventually all shut down, and it goes very, very bad. Hamsterdam, in case you're wondering, never happened in Baltimore. Kurt Schmoke didn't actually do this. He didn't actually instruct his police department, nor was there any rogue that I'm aware of that actually did anything like that. And Kurt Schmoke was not proposing something like a Hamsterdam where people were actually shooting up themselves and in the street. This was to be you know, the, the, the heavier drugs say heroin, would be treated by doctors under his plan. Nonetheless, Kurt Schmoke got tons of opposition in that 1988 hearing. Uh, Charles B. Rangel, a Democrat of New York, posed Schmoke's proposal. He was chairing the meeting. He brings up in testimony Mayor Koch of New York City, who tells the panel, Mr. Schmoke is a brilliant spokesperson for a bad idea. And you have to understand this moment. Schmoke, this is the beginning of his mayorality, not the end of it. He's a guy with so much promise. And people from outside Baltimore are looking at Kurt Schmoke and saying, this is great. This wonderful, educated young man has become mayor of a city with problems. And then here he is making this radical suggestion at this hearing. Here's what Ed Koch says. I want to tell you why it's a bad idea, although you already know. The fact is that it's not a new idea. People sat at this table as they just invented the wheel. That particular wheel, which is a flat wheel, we tried in Great Britain. Koch said the number of addicts in Britain doubled after doctors were allowed to prescribe heroin. Now, I've done some research on that. At least my take on it is that, yeah, in the UK, up until the late 1960s, and there's still programs existing today Doctors were treating heroin addicts with a lesser form of the drug under their control. Um, And it was when this program was discontinued, that's where the tension lies, where Koch is saying that it doubled after they did this. Well, that's after they stopped allowing the doctors to do that in the UK, and then there was nowhere else for patients to go, and the drug trade increased. One of the... um, uh, Former uh, directors running that program in the UK had said that, uh, you know, the reason that it went up so much is that if you're not if you're under a doctor's control and they're prescribing the drug to you, you don't have any need to go and recruit people to start using the way you are. But illegal drug users do because very often they fund their drug by dealing the drug. So 
look, this is that doctor's opinion. He was running the program. You know, uh, everybody has their biases. Koch has his biases. This doctor has his biases. Bias. There are other people who say the Brit- British approach, you know, which they're still doing in forms today. There's still pilot programs and things that they're doing. Um, never gets people off drugs if the doctor is prescribing it. How do you how do you eventually get them off? You know, so it's uh, there's a lot of debate. But this was Koch's contention at the time. You know, they did it in the UK. It didn't work. Marion Barry, mayor at the time of the District of Columbia, said he didn't have an opinion on legalization. He doesn't even want to go as far as Schmokes does, as far as Smoke does. But he thought it should be discussed and debated. This is before he himself is revealed to be a user of cocaine and, you know, loses at least temporarily his, his seat as mayor. It's a tag that will be applied to Kurt Schmoke for the rest of his term as mayor, and he's going to get reelected. Uh, he, his legalization idea goes nowhere nationally, but he is popular in Baltimore. Here's what they said uh, as he's running in 1995. All the money that's leaving the city, what do we do, asked Fanny Fitzgerald, 67, a retired nurse, who said that as a black woman she was proud to support Mr. Smoke four years ago, but is too discouraged to vote at all this year. There's an empty house next to mine. The bricks are falling down. It rains in there. The drug dealers have taken over. This has been five years. What do we do? It was an all-too-familiar refrain for the 45-year-old Mr. Smoke, who has lost the high hopes and goodwill that accompanied his arrival at City Hall. He is now in the toughest race of his career, facing a predicament that not even his detractors imagined in 1987. This predominantly black city is threatening to throw out its black mayor and elect a white one. An incumbent black mayor of a major black majority American city has never been upset by a white opponent. Well... That won't happen. Kurt Schmoke does win re-election, defeating the council president at the time, uh, somebody aligned with uh, Mayor Schaefer, who Schmoke and Schaefer are kind of fighting at this point. But the next mayor will be white, and that's Martin O'Malley. Jobs are down. Crime and school dropout rates are up. Pool of money from Washington. And this is a key difference between him and Schaefer. At this point, the pool of money from Washington is all but depleted. There are special projects. He has a good relationship with the Clinton administration. This helps him. But there isn't as much money anymore. Schmoke felt that he was unfairly criticized. And, the, you know, he, he said, we're all trying to fight the Schaefer myth. I dramatically decreased the size of government. And part of that was reducing the PR apparatus. It was a good government move, but it reduced the ability to portray an image week to week of the mayor in action. And I paid a price for that. During this election, he was criticized on two fronts, that he steered at least $2.4 million worth of city's legal business to his two close political advisors. And then when he got into trouble, political trouble with a white opponent, he did something that he hadn't done at all in 87, running as this kind of young guy from Yale. He made his bumper stickers red, black, and green, the colors of the black liberation movement. And his slogan is, makes us proud. He would win his race, and now um, Kurt Schmoke heads up the University of Baltimore and still talks about advocating treatment policy and treating drug addiction. What does Kirk Schmoke, uh, what does Kirk Schmoke think about the wire? For those of us who live in Baltimore, he said our biggest complaint about the wire is that it does not reflect the fact that ours, in effect, is a tale of two cities. The casual viewer of the show 
would not know that Baltimore is the home of some outstanding museums, fine universities, world-class medical research institutions, tourist attractions, and tree-lined residential communities. It exposes the reality of the other Baltimore. Vacant houses, poor-performing public school system, concentration of poverty. These two Baltimores coexist only 40 miles from the nation's capital. When Schmoke left office, the problems weren't solved. 10% of the population, 60,000 people, were addicted to drugs. 16% of third graders met the state reading standards. 15% of teenagers were neither in school nor were they employed. And the unemployment rate in the city was twice the rest of Maryland. Somewhere between 10,000 and 40,000 homes were vacant. And he turned over a city that was in trouble to the next mayor. Testifying before Congress in 1988, he proposed three initial first steps. First, eliminate all remaining criminal penalties for marijuana. Money previously spent on interdiction would instead be channeled to prevention programs. But there he was running into a problem. Because it's easy to see. Marijuana is by far, at that time anyway, the easiest drug to interdict. This is in 1995, giving law enforcement agencies opportunities to catch criminals and to say they were having victories in war on drugs. It was hard to give those up. Step two for Schmoke was to allow public health professionals to distribute heroin and cocaine to addicts as part of supervised maintenance or treatment programs. And step three was the exploration of broader decriminalization, just the exploration at this point, creation of a government commission that would study substance abuse, including tobacco and alcohol, and make recommendations on how they should be regulated based on their potential for harm. Presumably, they'd recommend taking at least some money spent on prosecution and redirecting it towards drug rehabilitation. This is 1987. We're now in 2020. And I think a lot of people look at Schmoke as perhaps a not-so-successful mayor of Baltimore. Maybe, as he says, and he quotes George H.W. Bush said about him, a well-meaning man who had no money. Perhaps he was a failed mayor, but maybe he's a prophet and deserves some credit for what a lot of people now are acknowledging is probably the most logical answer. It's one of the great plagues I, I now believe of, I mean, I think it was always a plague in political discourse, um, and it's always going to be with us in political discourse, but I think one of the great new plagues of the 21st century is people who believe they have the answer in a paragraph, who believe that they can come up, they can conjure an explanation for how we should do governance and how we should array our society that will apply in every, to every single problem and in every single circumstance to which we find ourselves. You show me somebody who is certain that the liberal or conservative or libertarian or, or Marxist or free market uh, capitalistic mode is going to solve every problem. And I'll show you somebody who is... And in one episode of David Simon's The Wire... The mayor is exploring what to do about the enforcement of drugs in a particular area where the rogue police major has allowed drug use to flourish. And 
his public health commissioner speaks up and says, Mayor, they're going to call you the most dangerous man in America. Well, that was Kurt Schmoke himself, who actually played the part of that commissioner on The Wire. David Simon, it was said, was an authenticity freak. He would put all sorts of, he put real gangsters in some of the roles. He would put real policemen and real teachers in some of the roles, real reporters in some of the roles. When he would do Treme later about New Orleans, he would put musicians in, uh, despite the complaints of some producers who were used to working with professional actors. But Schmoke makes his appearance. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for subscribing to the Premium Podcast, where I can talk about topics like this. 